Okay, Fixplasm, episode 74, Days by James Lovegrove, No Relation. So the author of Days, James Lovegrove, No Relation, is so prolific that I forgot that Days is his only only a second book. Um, he's written quite a bit of tie-in fiction for fandoms like Firefly and Sherlock Holmes and Cthulhu. Uh, he's written children's books. Uh, he's written the fantasy series like the Pantheon series. It's uh, the Age of Odin, Age of Ra, and that that sort of thing. Not haven't read too much of that. Um, but his debut novel was The Hope. I first discovered this uh, via my roommate at uni, who waved it at me and said, "You know, is this a relative of yours?" And I said, "No." Um, so then I got my own copy. And I wish I still had that copy because it had this brilliant cover of this absolutely vast cruise ship looming over the observer with row upon row of deck lights as if you were in the water and it was passing by you, this massive Leviathan, totally unstoppable. Um, Now, it's had a few editions since. Uh, and I think it was even reprinted by White Wolf in the mid-90s. My copy is the Galantz edition, which uh, was a reprint, and it's got a, an afterword by the author that talks about how it's been 10 years out of print. Anyway, as far as I'm concerned, Days, which is James Lovegrove's second novel, is The Hope. It's this massive department store in the middle of a city, possibly London, um, rather than being a cruise ship in the middle of nowhere. But otherwise, it's quite similar. You know, three dimensions measured in miles, uh, like the, the hope's supposed to be five miles long, two miles wide and a mile high. And uh, the uh, the day's department store is measured in the same order of magnitude. It has its own internal hierarchy. And on the hope, that's the deck numbers. Uh, in days, it's the tier of your account card, which runs through from aluminium through uh, gold, palladium, all the way up to osmium. Aluminium is spelt correctly, of course. And like the hope, the interior is both tribal and full of ordinary people trying to interact with the structure and reminding themselves that they're happy to be here. So, as always, I'll give a bit of a synopsis, uh, then I'll talk about some themes and the role-playing opportunities, and then I'll finish off with some further reading, which is going to be a little longer than usual. But here we go. Days is the world's first, and some say foremost, gigastore, a building whose dimensions are measured in kilometres, and it was conceived by Septimus Day as a place where everything could be bought and sold, with 777 departments over seven floors. In this world, the day store card is the only currency accepted within the store, and it seems outside the store as well. Well, there's probably other currencies, but certainly the day store card is accepted for train tickets and presumably a whole load of other services. The precise relationship between the cards and sterling isn't explored at all, but it's implied that the day's account system is a crucial, though privately owned subsystem of the economy and treasury. Day's cards are desirable and come in several tiers. Originally, seven. So that's silver, gold, platinum, palladium, iridium, rhodium and osmium. Though recently, the lower tier aluminium card was introduced by the Seven Days Brothers as an answer to flagging sales. And this isn't the only change that Septimus Day's sons have made to their father's original plan. I'll get to that in a bit. 
So the day's giga store is like a separate country and the cards are passports. Everyone coming into the store is screened for weapons. The store has its own map surveillance system called the Eye and it even trains a private army of store detectives called Ghosts and maintains armed tactical security. Bear in mind this is still Britain so we effectively have a private company with employees open carrying where the police may or may not be similarly armed and certainly there's an implied culture of private companies arming their employees, whilst it's still illegal for citizens to carry. It's also worth noting that Frank Hubble, one of our point-of-view characters, needs to swipe his day's card along the barrel of his sidearm to take the safety off. So as a result, shoplifters can be maimed, shot or killed in the store, but they're never prosecuted outside the store, just permanently banned. The Day's brothers want nothing to do with the courts of the land. So let's talk about characters and start with the seven brothers who are now running the store following their father's decline and death. There are seven who are Mungo, Chaz, Wensley, Thurston, Fred, Sato and Sonny. All sons induced to be born on the right day of the week by the father's bribes to their mother's doctors. And they're this cartoonish array of characters you know mungo is a muscle-bound hulk uh, wensley is a glutton thurston is this spindly bookish geek and each of them gets to chair the day's business on their allotted day with the exception of sunny because the store isn't open on sunday her sunny is a pivotal character he's a raging alcoholic quite possibly because he's got nothing to do all the time because uh, the store isn't open on sundays but Mostly he's an alcoholic because of the trauma he suffered as his birth caused their mother's death and he was effectively raised by his eldest brother Mungo and it's kind of a screwed up family dynamic. So moving on from those characters we have a few others. Um, Frank Hubble I mentioned earlier is an experienced ghost who's gearing up to quit his job on this day before he loses his identity completely. Then there's Linda and Gordon Trivet, who are a suburban couple who, after five years of scrimping and saving, are now visiting the store with their brand new silver card for the first time. And then there are various employees of the feuding books and computers departments. So here's the hook. The novel covers one full day in the Giga store and starts with Frank's morning routine where he walks through his apartment of rooms, uh, apartments that he never really spends time in. And they're full of Day's branded products he never uses. And we get a sense of his existential problem, that he's he's kind of fading from existence. Each morning he has to will his own reflection into being. He has to quit being a ghost before the job consumes him entirely. And this is probably a problem that's just in his head, but it's worth noting that uh, there is an element of mysticism in the author's previous book, The Hope, and there are hints here as well. And the scenes with Frank are intercut with those of the Days brothers as they get ready for the day's commerce and the Trivets as they prepare for their first outing to the store. So then the rising action is, over the course of the day, these various threads are drawn together with the individual arcs crossing at points. And the central plot is, um, is basically the dispute between books and computers. And to understand the dispute, we have to talk about what the brothers have done to their father's vision. 
Originally, there were seven floors and 777 departments given equal space and prominence, irrespective of what they sold or that department's revenue. And the brothers changed this, first by turning the top floor, which is the violet floor, into their own apartments. So they all work above and they basically never leave. Then they started shuffling departments around so the ones with the most desirable products were in high traffic areas. And then later they started changing the allocation of floor space. And this is what's caused the dispute between books and computers, which has resulted in both sides conducting guerrilla warfare against the other, uh, resulting in injuries to employees of both sides. And it's all over a strip of 10 square metres of shop floor. So there's a dispute between these two departments. So the brother's solution to the shop floor uh, dispute is normally to send one of them, which is normally Chaz, who's their face man. He's the one with the charisma uh, and the diplomacy. So he'll go down to the departments to adjudicate and say, you know, this is what's happening. But in this case, um, for various reasons, Sonny has asked to go ahead. Now, you, you have to understand that sort of Sonny's arrived late to breakfast, and when he gets to breakfast, he's basically... Um, his breakfast is gin and tonic with an awful lot of gin. Um, and he says, you know, he whines to his brothers to say that they never involve him in business. And he says, you know, why not send me instead? Which is an awful idea. But for whatever reason, Mungo backs him up on the condition that he stays sober. So he says, I mean, he makes a very specific deal and says, you know, if you do not drink any more from that bottle of gin, you can go and do this on our behalf. And so the decision is taken that, that Sonny is sent down to do that. Um, but you can guess what happens next. Uh, Sonny gets around this dictate. He succumbs to his addiction. And his performance on the shop floor causes things to get worse in the dispute and actually escalate with deadly consequences. But while all this is happening, Linda and Gordon Trivet are making their way around the store uh, and being near fights, they're sort of fresh eyes on the on the horrors within. Um, they they get into an argument between themselves because they, they both have, uh, well, Linda's really keen on the idea. Gordon is very, very conservative and worried about spending money. Uh, so they get into an argument about who should hold the day's cards and whether they should traipse around together. And then uh, Linda participates in a flash sale, which is uh, which is something that happens in the store. And for five minutes, something is discounted and shoppers lo totally lose their minds in pursuit of bargains that aren't really that good for products they don't really need. But Linda gets caught up with it and she's totally exhilarated by the experience, sort of kicking and punching her way through to the tills. And at the same time, Gordon's seeing a different side to the store's violence where he gets cornered in the mirror department by a pair of Burlingtons. So these are rich young gangers who sharpen the edges of their cards and harass shoppers below them in the implied hierarchy. He's rescued by store security, but it's a horrible experience. They, they cut his face up. Um, and they're finally reunited when Linda goes into a second flash sale uh, in the Third World Instruments Department. Um, but this time, it's different. It's not sort of the sort of scrum uh, and uh, sort of exhilarating experience she's expecting. It escalates into a shopping mall. So 
to understand these sort of flash sales, um, there's five minutes of frenetic activity and violence, and then at the end of the at the end of the five minutes, when people realise they can no longer get the discount, everything calms down, unless it escalates to a mall, a shopping mall. That's M A U L. Um, people just stop trying to buy the things and they just fight each other and the violence continues after the five minutes are up and security have to be called and break it up uh, or they let it burn out. So when this happens with Linda, uh, Gordon drags her out and the two reconcile. But in the climax, um, and this is all happening during the space of a day, uh, Frank in the climax, uh, and Frank's finally gotten the courage to tell his boss he's quitting. He's he's spent the whole novel sort of agonising over quitting. Um, he ends up in a collision course with the deadly conflict between books and computers. And basically, um, it's a little bit of a spoiler, but not very much. Uh, the um, the head of books, who is much aggrieved that computers have taken ten square meters of her shopping floor, uh, has constructed a bomb out of uh, basically get by, by a version of the Antius cookbook and um, constructed entirely of products which are found elsewhere in the store, which is sort of just marvellous. And um, Frank's basically on a collision course with this, with what's going to happen. It's quite obvious. And they intersect with uh, Gordon and Linda at the same time. Uh, and it's a really tense moment because he's obviously the policeman with one more shift to go, never fired his gun in his whole career and that sort of thing. Um, and there is a tragedy at the end. So a little bit of a spoiler, but kind of you expected that to happen. But also there's a really satisfying conclusion to the three main arcs. That's, um, that's Frank uh, and Linda and Gordon and Sonny. Um, so Frank basically has a glimpse of the outside world and drinks from a coffee cup that isn't carrying the day's logo. This is how far he is into the the day's uh, branding and ecosystem uh, and uh, there's almost a hint of romance there linda and gordon turn their backs on the store having narrowly escaped becoming corrupted by its influence um and lastly sonny's relationship with his elder brothers and his position as one of the seven is completely resolved not in a particularly pleasant way and on the whole this isn't a a, this isn't exactly a small book, but it slips down really easily. I, I reread it in a few hours. Um, and the pacing and the ensemble cast and the resolution of arcs really puts me in mind of something like a, a Richard Curtis film, uh, you know, like Four Weddings. Not not like Love Actually, which is shite. Um, but anyway, that's kind, That's very much... A, it is a recommendation. Yeah, it's, um, it's paced really well. It's got some nice characters and it presents an interesting and very consistent world that uh puts me in mind of how to use this in the context of what i've been talking for the last few episodes about city themes and that's what i'm going to talk about now so as far as themes go um i think there are two things i want to consider and sort of uh, as an overview one is what kind of a world has gigastores that effectually function like sovereign nations you know, they, they make up their own laws based on the contract between Days and its cardholders, um, including the use of lethal force. They operate their own currency. They represent the whole world in terms of what they offer to the consumer. They resist interacting with the authorities outside. And 
So what effect do these gigastores have on outside economies? They're, they're effectively manufactured nations with a very different non-geographic basis for citizenship. And and we know that their influence extends outside the stores. You know, Frank Hobble uses his Iridium card to pay for his train ticket every day. So days must be processing payments to outside entities, just like Amazon or Google or Apple Pay. Now, manufactured nations in genre fiction go back to uh, cyberpunk with the Zybatsus of Neuromancer and the files of the Diamond Age. Um, and these entities are sovereign and they maintain their own military and enforce their own laws. But also, the influence that Days exerts over the traditional nations, this like sort of leviathan squatting in the middle of a land, reminds me of uh, Grant Morrison and the ideas of intelligent cities and corporations as a planetary disease. So here we have a world that's been colonized by these leviathans, these gigastores. It's pretty bleak, actually. And that's the view from the outside. But actually, I really want to focus on days as an organism because that's got a lot more play potential. And by organism, I mean not just the building and management, but also the consumers. So customers are the oxygen in days. You know, at 9 a.m., the doors open and the store takes a big breath in and then it exhales at 5.30 when everyone leaves. But then there's, there's a lot of other things going on in the various organs. You know, sort of tactical security are the antibodies and the white blood cells. Uh, and the, uh, the eye is the, the nervous system. And, uh, and also, these organic body parts of the body aren't really aware of other parts. You know, when one department encroaches on another, it's kind of like a malignant growth. And then parasites lurk in the stores, you know, little nooks and crannies. And the brain, the leadership at the top, even acts against its own interests. So uh, let's say you want to construct a game world like Days. Now, it could be a department store. It could be a corporation. It could be something more exotic, like a ship in the middle of an ocean that hasn't seen land for decades. So I think the principles are, number one, it's an autocracy. Uh, it's an autocracy, it's not a democracy. People do not vote on who their leaders are, their leaders do not change. More to the point, um, everyone has a direct relationship with the head of the organisation, right the way down through the chain of command. So here... Everyone in the shop floor is accountable to the Days Brothers through the management structure. Hmm. Point two, it's a global organisation. So this inner world is a microcosm of the outside world. And Days does this by selling everything it's possible to sell from every corner of the world. Now, uh, if you wanted to design a world like that, you, you, you could do it, go the sales angle. There's also, um, of course, representation by the staff and staff cultures. Let's say particularly if you wanted to have this as a colony or a space station or something like that, um, or a global corporation who takes the best talent from the world, uh, then you can represent. So the third point here, and, and maybe this is a bit unusual, is, is there are customers. So you have a constant influx of visitors. And this gives you a lot of scope for episodic stories, if that's the sort of thing you like. 
uh, with visitors bringing news and situations to the store or the corporation or the space station or, or whatever it is. Fourth point, um, there's a hierarchy and a prestige associated with that hierarchy. What I mean by this is that this place, you know, this shop or corporation or space station is a desirable place to be inside. And it has a hierarchy based on that prestige. So in days, it's the you want people want to be days customers and it is extremely prestigious to have a days card. Now. I want to make a side note here. If the hierarchy in the novel was just about the staff, you know, their staff rankings, it, it, it wouldn't be nearly as visceral as the hierarchy applying to the customers as well. Because then you say that, that somehow Dace has sold its entire philosophy to the outside world and said, be part of our pyramid scheme, be part of our hierarchy buy into this you know, it is prestigious outside days to be flashing around an osmium or an iridium that kind of brings me to the last point it's evil days is evil you knew that right okay the top floor was chopped off so they've only got 666 departments now big spoiler um it exists to separate shoppers from money well okay fine um but it's more than just that. It's a bit of an addiction. So all these tricks to say, please be part of this, be part of our scheme, get recognition from the people around you for having a particular tier of card. It is an addiction. And the things like flash sales kind of feed into that and they feed into this madness. Clearly there's something awful going on inside days. Okay, so if we're going to construct a world like this, whether it's a corporation or a department store, it's still very much like a city with a defined inside and a defined outside, various tiers of citizens and so on. And the tools I've talked about in the earlier episodes can be used here, but there are a couple of other things to pay attention to. The first one is people at the top. So the people at the top here are the Days Brothers. They're known to everyone and everyone is afraid of them or at least reverential. They could even have a kind of mythic status. The Days Brothers are the seven deities overseeing everything. They even have a designated messenger god who communicates with the populace. So when thinking about these characters, I would kind of consider what are they rumoured to be like? You know, everyone's going to have stories about the boss or the head they are they are media celebrities and in this novel specifically they are also quite reclusive they avoid contact with the outside world but there's lots of media speculation about what they're like i'd i'd ask questions like who has their ear you know what does true prestige look like not not just the not just the sort of store card prestige but who actually has the power to talk to them are there formal or informal reward structures within their organization outside the uh, outside the card structure or within the card structure? How do they reward employees? How do they punish them? When they communicate with people, how is it done? In this example, yes, you've got the messenger. And then the main thing I think about is then the physical spaces to do with days or this days-like place. 
People in the organisation occupy physical spaces, obviously. Now, frequently prestige is associated with being higher up in a building. Uh, and being sidelined or doing a secretive job is associated with being way down in the basement. And you could say this is largely cosmetic. It is still worth bearing in mind, you know, the, the size of the windows on the particular floor and the carpets and how it smells and the free snacks or water cooler or coffee or whatever. But thinking about more about these different spaces, um, and I'm thinking about the spaces that the uh, that everyone sees, that the consumers see and the staff sees and the ones that are only they're only available to a subset of those thinking about these spaces they have different functions um so days has various shop floors divided into departments the customers are free to browse anywhere they want but ironically the staff in each department are confined to those areas it's kind of interesting and the shop floor is separate from the security stations and the private residences and the other other offices in the store and these are places where the customers can't go and the staff may or may not enter depending on their rank and function so back in episode 72 with the city of the city i discussed how different people will see a shared space differently all customers will have a shopping agenda and regulars are likely to have their favorite places now, in the case of the Burlingtons, these gangs of rich kids with shop and days cards, some of these areas may be considered hunting grounds. And you could imagine different parts of the store being the de facto territories of different kinds of customer, according to their credit level. So when you come to define characters, they will all have favourite places. And of course, these are the places where scenes happen and people intersect. So when you design your playgroup, you might want to have one person describe a place and why it's important to them, and then have a second player describe how they're also connected to it. A bit like how the playgroup gets connected in drama system, you know, hill folk games with um, relationships and needs. And also, um, similar to Liz's game Rise and Fall, where the interactions are low society or high society or high crossing the social divide over to low, um, these interactions, the scenes, could be customer to customer, staff to staff, or staff to customer. Now, one other thing that comes to mind about these favourite places is a place like Days is bound to have different nooks and crannies which may be shielded from surveillance or, or just off the beaten path. And each character may have a place that's special to them. Uh, and going back to the notions of territory, this place is somehow theirs. You know, they, they own it. People aren't people aren't supposed to be there. Um, if they're a customer, maybe it's a department that holds special significance. Maybe it's in books and there's a special reading that they go to. Maybe it's in uh, maybe it's in clocks, and it's a piece of merchandise that they've always wanted but they could never afford or justify. So they just visit this thing from time to time, uh, a bit like uh, Wayne's World visiting his guitar. But as for staff members, you know, that they could be part of a roof where they go for a smoke and that's their special place. Or there might be a, a favourite table where they eat lunch. Um, it could be something a bit more bizarre, like they've, they've, somebody's constructed a rude shrine to the memory of Septimus Day. Or a hovel adorned with random bits of tat like a cargo cult. And Days isn't overtly magical, 
But there is a this sort of potential of a sort of mini neverwhere here with a certain classes of shoppers or employees being ignored and constituting a hidden culture. Still, and while we're at it, why not just throw in some ghosts or some legends? Someone, you know, uh, someone who seems to you know, push a trolley around the store all day, every day, but never checks out their goods. Or obscure departments where the art of the sale is sufficiently esoteric that it's actually a form of magic. Uh, you know, a bit unknown armies there, I think. And I said this place is evil. So the, the last point about places, I think, is to consider areas where the evil is particularly strong. And imagine there's this huge lake of evil, negative energy under everything, like spirit world and world of darkness. And, and at some places, the gauntlet is thin and the evil bubbles to the surface. And that's when your flash sales happen. That's the ones that become a mole. That's the cause of interdepartmental wars that escalate into physical violence. And, and you know so on so when you're designing the department store by location maybe the referee should create a few negative spaces haunted by the blight of commercial excess maybe even add a black mark to one or two player created locations you know see how that affects scenes so speaking of scenes um it's great that we've built this great big world but now how does it all interact in play that's what really matters right and what's the structure like? So taking a lot of cues from Power by the Apocalypse here for the structure, um, the first idea I have is to base the session around a clock or, or maybe a series of clocks. In the novel, um, the pacing around the novel is based on the working day. And that's also a good setup for your session, or at least you know part of your session. Strange things happen at certain points with the flash sales. So let's say you have uh, three clocks, uh, Apocalypse World style clocks, six segments per clock. When the day starts, every new scene moves the clock on one segment. And when all segments of the clock are filled, uh, have a flash sale or some other promotion that injects something random and dangerous into the space where the characters are. So you run through three clocks uh, and continue to escalate the flash events with each successive completion of a clock. And after the third clock, close the day up, mop up, see what happens, um, uh, distribute um, relationship points, hex points, whatever. Aside from that, fitting into the structure, do the usual stuff with following characters around and seeing what they do. You know, construct fronts to keep tracks of various threats like gangs, other shoppers, shopping promotions, overzealous sales assistance, that sort of thing. Um, but what you also want to do is uh, leverage the places that the player characters have defined as theirs and set the scenes in those, obviously. Uh, those, that is the part of the world that matters to the players. And encourage the characters to bump into one another. In terms of relationship to various places, you could use this, you know, I mentioned HX, um, Hex, Hex, HX, I'm not sure, uh, that sort of mechanic where a shopper knows a department particularly well and is therefore at some kind of advantage in interactions whilst in that space. But then the idea is that uh, they gather more, gather a stronger relationship with that department or location. At some point it rolls back to zero you get an advance and suddenly 
you're in a completely new relationship with that that space. Possibly, you know, it leads on to the next department across. You've realised that there is more beyond this department, and you're now looking at the next shopping opportunity. And you could use that to generate new parts of the store organically, almost, I can see. I'm thinking about this a bit further. Um, I have run games like this before. I set one in uh, in a coffee shop in a mall um, where the characters it was kind of a it was kind of a inspired by Empire Records with the whole sort of by the end of the day you have to save the shop the independent shop um, otherwise uh, Lucifer Morningstar will recover his wings and uh, the apocalypse will start because um, that's what happened uh, but it, it's basically yeah pacing. The most powerful thing is here is is the, the the mechanics of having different locations is extremely useful, and I think something could actually be made of that into the game. But the pacing I find tends to make this kind of game, um, and uh, and I think formalizing that should be the first priority. You know, keeping a handle on what happens when and keeping things move forward to always present a a sense of urgency. Now. I think that for 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 players playing staff, maintaining a sense of urgency that stuff needs to be done all the time isn't so hard. For customers, it's it's going to be a lot harder because they're they're basically a lot more passive. They are going to be there to do their shopping, and um, they want to pick up the stuff that they're after. But mostly, they're waiting for the points where the clock shifts into the sixth segment and all hell breaks loose and then they react to those. So I think that's why sort of managing with a, a clock structure might help. Last thought on this, I mentioned Rise and Fall and in that game you play two characters who represent high society and street level versions of the same avatar. So riffing off this, um, it might be great for each player to have a single concept and then two characters as alternate versions of that avatar. One is a staff member and the other is a customer. And that gives you an awful lot more flexibility in scene settings. Uh, it also would pose a kind of an existential question. So you know, what, what if each of these pairs was actually the same person existing in two states inside a massive hellish department store? Hmm. Yeah, okay. Um, I think now I want to talk about other stuff and a couple of other novels. And I want to talk about two other novels because they've really influenced my thoughts on the themes here. And they have a lot of the same structure and concepts. And the first one is High Rise by J.G. Ballard. Uh, some say that is his finest novel. Uh, I think it's a, it's a reasonable challenge. Um, and I've considered this for an episode on its own, but it does fit perfectly in here. Uh, it is one of the best realised and paced in his general theme of you know impending societal doom and collapse. So I'm going to give a quick synopsis of High Rise. Um, it's it's basically set in a tower block recently constructed by the architect Anthony Royal, who occupies its penthouse, and it has three point of view characters. The first one we meet is Dr. Robert Lang, and he lives more or less in the middle tranche of floors among the middle classes. And he's recently divorced, and he's been encouraged to take up one of these exclusive luxury apartments by his sister Alice. Then there's Richard Wilder, 
a documentary maker who represents the lowest floors, although these are they're not really working class. Um, then there's there's Royal himself is the third point of view character, and he's our lens into the upper class and upper floors. And when when I reread it, I was struck by how the novel really hard frames the scenes. And the, the first act of aggression, which is the drowning of a dog in the swimming pool, happens at the end of the first chapter. And it's not long after we have residents fighting over rubbish chutes, occupying and barricading elevators and stairways, putting dog shit in the ventilation system so that the, the tenants beneath them suffer, denying the lower floors electricity and then physically and sexually assaulting people in the darkness. And it all goes down it all goes downhill really quickly. And whilst all this happens, we have the upper floors hoarding resources, controlling the elevators and beating up the lower residents with exercise equipment and the existential musings of Royal on the form and function of the high-rise and, uh, and its interaction with animal life. It's got something about the seagulls on the roof. And Richard Wilder at the same time is making his ascent of the high-rise by brute force with the notion of it becoming his documentary. And Lang is just basically observing and, and surviving. Somehow he's, he's kind of intoxicated by it all. He's long since given up going outside to his teaching job at the hospital. A lot of it is the upper floor shitting, both literally and metaphorically, on the lower ones, and generally behaving like the very worst examples of the, uh, you know, the savages that everyone has become. Everyone has this survivalist, post-apocalyptic mentality, uh, all living hand to mouth, uncovering of caches of food which they consume randomly. And aside from the obvious collapse of a gated community and the class warfare, there are two things that stand out. One is the way the various side characters are dehumanised and reduced down to their occupations, like the optician and the gynaecologist and the interior designer. All of which is kind of absurd because these labels mean very little in the feral environment of the high-rise. And the, the dehumanisation is even, even arguably a psychological condition, as this quote from the book shows. A new social type was being created by the apartment building a cool, unemotional personality impervious to the psychological pressures of high-rise life with minimal needs for privacy, who thrived like an advanced species of machine in the neutral atmosphere. And the other thing is the ways that all of the floors, regardless of advantage in this situation, have unconsciously agreed to keep it away from outside influences. Now, people have died, bodies are stacking up, there's rubbish everywhere, but everyone is conspiring to keep this a secret from the outside world, turning the police away when they come to investigate. It's like, despite the obvious disparity in the high-rise, everyone's bought into the idea of its exclusivity. They all want to be part of the club. So that's one example, and there are obvious parallels with days in terms of the partitioning of the floors and of the, the social hierarchy. There's somebody at the top um, as a confined space, there's a defined outside and inside. The other novel I want to talk then about is James Lovegrove's first book, The Hope. Uh, and I really do think that in some ways, Days is The Hope 2.0. And the premise of The Hope is an ocean liner that was a philanthropist's dream, five miles long, two miles wide and a mile high, that set sail and a generation later still hasn't sighted land. So it's this giga structure, isolated and, and teeming with life in all its little nooks and crannies. 
Some people are decidedly ordinary and just trying to live a normal life. Others are really weird and live on the fringes. And the novel is a series of linked short stories, and the genre is definitely horror. And whilst Days has the merest implied mythology, there is actual supernatural and unexplained things here on the Hope. The story No Man's Land is about people working deep in the engine rooms and trying to clear out a rat infestation, and they find a hole in a bulkhead where the rats have apparently chewed through an inch of steel to get out. So they go in thinking to clear the rats out, and they find that the rats, which which are about the size of poodles, have been eating the ship's cats. Um, they've not been trying to get into their area. They're actually trying to get away from the things in the dark. And the monsters... But the monsters in the dark aren't really the point. I mean, they are horrific. Um, what's the real point is the negative space between and beneath the structures in the bowels of the ship. Um, the party kind of goes on this subterranean quest... It, kind of, it finds this cave structure between all the bits of machinery, like, like the engines and ballast tanks and so on. And so there's kind of lurking horror in this space that should not be in the bowels of this massive structure. There's a couple of other standout stories that I really like. One is the Rain Man, which is about this ghostly figure composed of rain, only visible in a rainstorm, and supposedly wandering the ship looking for its soul, which legend says was trapped by the captain. Then there's another story called uh, Dr. Macaulay's Casebook, which talks about dwindling surprise of drugs and how there's only been one doctor for maybe 100,000 patients, and it gives dates in weeks, and the first entry of the casebook is week, week 1783. So the ship's been on... Assuming, assuming we trust that, the ship's been... Um, on its voyage for more than 34 years. And th this story is about the Doctor's relationship with a middle-aged Ukrainian couple and how the man appears to have gone mad thinking that the ship is trying to kill his wife. And the Doctor calls this the Hope Syndrome. It's kind of a sort of extreme cabin fever. But then he himself is convinced that it's not all in the head, that the ship really is trying to kill its occupants. And he calls back to the events of No Man's Land, suggesting that the lurking horrors are a kind of antibody, and the ship itself is an organism that wants to rid itself of its parasites, the passengers and the crew. And this theory is reinforced in the final story, Lonely the Rat. And actually, this idea of, of dwelling, as a dwelling as a living organism is implied in High Rise as well, in this quote from that book. They would take turns standing with their hands pressed against the metal walls of an elevator shaft, feeling the vibrations transmitted to their bodies, picking up a sudden movement fifteen floors above or below. Crouched on the staircase with their fingers on the metal rails, they listened to the secret murmurs of the building, the distant spasms of violence that communicated themselves like the bursts of radiation from another universe. The high-rise quivered with these tremors, sinister trickles of sound as a wounded tenant crawled up a stairway, a trap closed around a wild dog, an unwary prey went down before a club. So in summary, like days, both High Rise and The Hope have their implied social structure for upper and lower decks. We have people going mad, shocking acts of violence. We have the expectation of outsiders, that to be a passenger on The Hope, 
or a resident in the high-rise apartment designed by Anthony Royal or holding a day's card is highly prestigious. And if only they knew. And in all cases, we have someone at the top. It's the Days Brothers. It's Anthony Royal. And it's the captain. Of those three, the hopes are set apart in that we don't actually see the person at the very top. We just know that it's his vision that is steering the ship and has so far failed to find land and is therefore really just preserving the status quo, which is pretty miserable. All right, I think that's it for this episode. I hope you liked it. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, share and subscribe. The music, as always, is by Chris Zabriskie. Until next time.